Hey, welcome to, to Center Church and welcome to flannel season, right? Woo! Yay, fall! Um, after being a thousand degrees until October 4th, we finally get to bring out all of our, uh, our button-ups and our sweaters and our infinity scarves that we've been wanting to wear for months and months now. Uh, and that have been worn by Gap models since the middle of August, because apparently they all live in Canada, is where they all live. Um, hey, I'm the lead pastor here at Center Church. If you're a guest with us, I just want to give you a special shout out. We're really thrilled that you're here, and I would love to meet you after the service and just hear a little bit more of your story, share a little about, uh, about who we are, and help you get connected. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open it up or turn it on to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 42 through 47, as Patty did a great job reading for us. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Um, and in honor of fall, I want to start this morning by um, sharing with you two very different experiences with an apple orchard, okay? Two very different experiences with an apple orchard. The first occurred earlier this week when my wife and I took our three kids to Carter's Mountain Apple Orchard. Have you ever been there? Like, yeah, Carter's Mountain, great. Um, so, you know, we got there, and the, and the weather was pretty decent, and we, we showed up, and we paid our $9 or whatever it was, and we got our bags, and we headed out to the orchard. And what you know if you're a parent is that when you take your kids to an apple orchard, you do very little picking of apples. Mostly what you do is you tell your kids not to eat the apples that are smushy on the ground, and if you're at Carter's Mountain, you try to keep your two-and-a-half-year-old from falling off the face of the mountain, okay? Or at least that's what I was doing mostly on Monday. So we went out to the orchard, we picked some apples, uh, we came back, we took a hayride, that was pretty fun, right? The hayride kind of goes around, you get to see the views. Uh, we went and bought some apple cider donuts. Anybody ever have the apple cider donuts there? Very solid, very solid. Vega's like with me now. He's like, I wasn't engaged before, but you said apple cider donuts and I'm with you, okay? So we ate apple cider donuts and we called it a day, right? We got back in the van and we drove down the treacherous mountain road that apparently you should have a four-wheeler to get up, okay? So that was our experience with an orchard this year. I, I enjoyed it. It was fun, but it wasn't life-changing. I would call that dabbling, okay? So I dabble in apple orchards. I go about once a year with my kids, and I just sort of interact with it for a couple hours um, a day, okay? That is very different than my dad's experience with an apple orchard because my dad grew up working on a family orchard. Okay, so in my dad's side of the family, for six or seven generations, there's been this plot of land in the northern Shenandoah Valley that has been in my family, and they grow apples and peaches and all kinds of different fruits. So his entire childhood, my dad would spend the fall, sun up to sundown, working with his cousins, harvesting apples. So the whole family would come together, aunts and uncles and, and grandparents, everybody would get out there to bring in the fall apple harvest. Um, and, and for several weeks that fall, my dad was totally devoted to this orchard, okay, Blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, they were out there before the sun came out, uh, came up. They were out there until it went down. Uh, they lugged these massively heavy wooden ladders around because this was like the 1960s, right? So they didn't have, you know, like light aluminum ladders that you see at Lowe's now. So they're lugging these heavy wooden ladders from tree to tree. They're getting up there. You pick the apples, put them in a basket, then you walk it down to the end of the row where there's a truck, and you, you dump your basket into the truck, and then eventually you fill up enough basket that the truck drives to the barn, and then you go and unload them out of the truck into the barn, okay? So very, very wearying work, and my, my dad and his cousins would work there every single fall. Um, and you would think, you know, now, 50 years later, that my dad would talk about how hard it was, right? That he would complain about how much work it was, and that's what we do, right? Like, you know, I hiked, you know, uphill both ways to school and 12 inches of snow, that whole thing. You'd think that that, that is what he would do, but he never does. All he ever talks about is how much he loved that time of his life. He talks about how close he was with his cousins, right? Just deep friendships that he formed with his cousins. He talks about his grandmother, Annie, who would make these massive breakfasts, and they'd go out at 6 a.m., and they'd start working. They'd work for three hours, and they'd come in and eat this massive country breakfast, right, to kind of sustain them throughout the day. He talks about how at night they would take apples and make warm applesauce. And if you've never had like fresh apple, applesauce like right off the tree, you're missing it, okay? You're thinking like of the gross stuff in the, in the container at Walmart. That's not what we're talking about, okay? This stuff is really good. They'd make it and they'd eat it around the fireplace and they'd tell stories. And for several weeks, they would just spend a ton of time together doing something that was really hard but that really mattered. My dad, whenever he thinks about that time, doesn't complain about the, the hardship or about how weary he was. He talks about the incredible community, the joy, and the great purpose that he felt in that time. So I tell you those two different experiences with an apple orchard for this reason. I think it highlights two different approaches that you can take to Christianity. I think it highlights two different approaches that you can take to the gospel. You can take my approach with Carter's Mountain, which was to dabble in Christianity, or you can take my dad's approach to the family orchard, which is to be devoted to Christianity. If you choose my approach, 
like Carter's Mountain and you dabble in Christianity, you'll you know, kind of come to a service when it's convenient, um, but you, you'll kind of stay on the sidelines, right? You won't get much more involved than that. And if you dabble in Christianity, it's not going to cost you much. Like going to Carter's Mountain didn't cost me much, right? You, you won't have to get up early. You won't have to serve in our kids' ministry. You won't have to deal with joining a, a missional community. Like you'll just sort of dabble in Christianity. But here's what I want you to understand. If you dabble in Christianity, it will never become very meaningful in your life. If you dabble in Christianity, you'll be like me with Carter's Mountain. Oh, that was fun. What's next? But if you devote yourself to the gospel, if you treat Christianity, the gospel, if you treat the church like my dad treated his family orchard, it will cost you something. You'll join a setup team. You'll get here early to help make this whole thing happen. You'll invest in our kids and center kids. You'll join a missional community and you'll carve out time in your week to make that happen. And it will cost you something. But I promise you that if you devote yourself to the gospel, it will become the most meaningful thing in your life. You will experience the deep community and joy and purpose that my dad felt working at that orchard. You can either dabble in Christianity or you can devote yourself to it. And what we're going to learn is that in the very beginning, when the church was first born, in response to the gospel, they devoted themselves to Christianity. The natural response, when you really understand the gospel, when it really claims your heart, is devotion. When the gospel goes deep in your heart, it always works itself out in devotion in your life. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a very famous passage in the Bible, a passage in the Bible that describes the life of the early church, and in particular, it describes the devotion of the early church. And what I want you to see is three aspects of their devotion, three aspects of what happened in their lives in response to the gospel. And what we're going to find is that when we really understand the message of Christianity, when we really understand and believe that Jesus is who he said he, he is and he did what he said he did, it will result in this kind of devotion in our lives. Okay, so we're going to learn three things as we look at devotion. Here's number one, if you're taking notes. We're going to learn the focus of their devotion. Point number one, what was the focus of this early church's devotion? This is verse 42. So let me catch you up real quick on what's happened so far in Acts chapter 2, if you haven't been with us. Jesus ascended into heaven and he told his disciples, hey, wait in Jerusalem until I give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they gathered together in the Bible equivalent of an Airbnb and they start praying. And about 10 days later, they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And in response, they go out into the marketplaces and into the temple and they start proclaiming the wondrous works of God in languages that were unknown to them. So languages that they didn't grow up knowing, but that the Spirit gave them the ability to speak in. Well, this caused quite a stir because there were people in Jerusalem from all different countries because it was the, fe the festival of Pentecost. And I told you last week that Pentecost is sort of like a holy version of Mardi Gras, okay? So people from all over the world came to Jerusalem from different countries and languages, and yet they heard these disciples proclaiming God's glory in their own language fluently. So this caused qu quite a stir. A crowd formed, and so Peter took that opportunity to stand up and to proclaim the gospel. And that's what we talked about last week. He stood up and he said, because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. And remember, I told you that was a radical message. The idea that you didn't have to be from a certain family, that you didn't have to be of a certain religious pedigree, that you didn't have to have a squeaky clean record. But that no matter who you were, no matter what race, no matter what class, no matter what culture, if you repented and you believed in Jesus Christ, you could be cleansed of your sin and brought into the family of God. So Peter preached that message of hope, that message of the gospel. And at the end of his sermon, 3,000 people responded. 3,000 people said, yes, I am going to repent and put my hope and my life in Jesus' hands. And they were baptized and they joined the church that day. So verse 42 tells us, okay, 3,000 people were just added to the church. The gospel is clear. The gospel is powerful. They're understanding the gospel. How did they then respond? What did their life look like? This is what verse 42 says. And they, this whole group, devoted, that's a key word, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That word devoted means they gave themselves to. It means they abandoned themselves to these things. That they persisted in these things. That they persevered in these things when it was difficult. And what we find is devotion was the natural response to the gospel. When the gospel had stormed the barricades of their hearts and taken over, this was just how they wanted to respond. And I'll say to you this morning that when the gospel really takes hold in your heart, when it really captures your love and your affection, you will want to respond in devotion as well. 
And so as we walk through this passage and we see what the early church devoted themselves to, here's what I would encourage you to do. Ask yourself the question, am I devoted in the same way that that church was devoted? Am I responding to the good news of the gospel in the same way that the early church did? Okay, so just keep that, keep that going through your mind. And you'll find that maybe in some ways you are and in some ways that you aren't. And allow God to use this message to kind of stir up, man, some ways that you can rejoice that you're really growing and you're following Christ and maybe some areas that you have, you have to grow, just like I do, okay? So what did they devote themselves to? Well, this text gives us four things. Here's letter A. The first thing they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. You see that? The apostles' teaching. This would have included all kinds of ethical um, and practical instruction, very similar to what you find in the New Testament. So the fact that it's the apostles' teaching means that it wasn't just uh, any random set of religious axioms or platitudes from culture, but it was the specific teaching of Jesus entrusted to the apostles that they were now passing on to the church. You see, from the very beginning, Christianity has been a word-based religion, a word-based religion. That doesn't mean it doesn't also have an experiential side. It does, but you have to understand that in the, in the sense that Hinduism is mostly an experiential religion, right? Christianity is primarily and first a word-based religion. You can't have Christianity without the Bible. Experience is a part of Christianity, but the experience is always rooted in God's revelation of himself to us in his word. From the very beginning, they had 3,000 people join the church, and they didn't devote themselves to seeking, like, really, really powerful worship experiences, though that's great. They devoted themselves first in the list to the apostles' teaching. When there were many other things to be done, right? When 3,000 people join your church, it creates a lot of systems problems, right? Peter was like, where are we going to get small group leaders, right? Like, there's a lot of people, right? But even though all that was happening, there were a million other things, things to do, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Here's what the Bible tells us, and this is the Bible, so don't get mad at me. Well, you can get mad at me if you want. The Bible tells us that, that unfortunately, we are no longer naturally good. That there was a time when we were naturally good before sin entered the world. But after sin entered the world, we are now born with a proclivity towards sin. And beyond that, the Bible actually says that our hearts are really easily deceived. And so sometimes what we think is right that seems really right to us in our experience is actually wrong. So what we need is we need a standard with which we can be measured against and we can be formed into. We need an image of what is the true and the beautiful and the righteous that is outside of us because if all we do is look inwardly, we're only ever going to see our own values and presuppositions reflected. Does that make sense? If all we ever do is look inwardly, we can never really be reformed or conformed into the image of Jesus. So to help us, God has given us his word. One of the primary jobs of the Bible is to shape you into who God created you to be. It's like you are a block of marble Right? And God, God has a beautiful sculpture in mind, and the Bible is the chisel with which he makes you into that beautiful sculpture. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 is one of the most famous passages in the Bible about the Bible. And it says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, that's an important word, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. So that word profitable means that the Bible is good for or effective at shaping us. Do you see those words that it used? Um, teaching, so that means, okay, we're going to increase our knowledge so we better understand the world. Reproof, that means, hey, maybe we thought this or we were going this way and the Bible's going to reprove us and say, no, that's actually not right. Let's go this way, right? Uh, training in righteousness, that means that it's going to train you and equip you to do something, right? Practical application. Why? So that the man or woman of God might be a complete and equipped for every good work. So that you could reach that, that sculpture that God created you to be. You know how um, if you want to get in shape, you hire a trainer? Right? Why do you hire a trainer? I know I would hire a trainer because I look at this body and I'm like, this don't look how I want it to look. Right? So I'm going to pay someone outside of me to help me get this thing in shape. Right? And I'm going to say, man, I really love queso dip. I do. I love it. I love queso dip. You should too. Righteous people love queso dip. Okay? Right? I love people are like, yeah, that's true. That's a true statement. You won't shake your head at anything else I say, but yeah, it's, it's, I mean, everybody knows that. Right? Here's the thing. Sometimes my trainer, because I'm saying I want you to help me be shaped into something different, is going to say, Josh, put the cheese down. Okay? Put the cheese down because you're never going to become what you need to become and you want to become if you keep doing this over here. Okay? 
That's how the Bible works in our lives. The Bible speaks into our lives, and sometimes it's hard things, but it does it for our good because God is wanting to shape you and make you into what he created you to be. You see, from the very beginning, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the question I'd offer for you is, is that true of your life? Are you being shaped by God's word in the Bible? Are you being trained for righteousness? Are you being taught? Are you being built up? Are you being reproved sometimes? Are you being shaped by God's word or are you being shaped more by other forces and influences? Whether that's the, the peers that you spend time with, the family of origin that you came from, or a culture at large. From the very beginning, the disciples understood that if they were going to follow Christ, they needed to have a standard outside of themselves that they could be formed against. And that's true for us today, okay? That's the first thing they devoted themselves to is the apostles' teaching. Here's letter B. Here's the second thing. Each other. The second thing they devoted them to, themselves to was each other. This is from verse 42 and 46. It says, they were devoted to fellowship and the breaking of bread. Fellowship and breaking of bread. That means they lived in genuine community and gave themselves away to one another. And verse 46, a little bit further down, if you look with me, tells us what that fellowship actually looked like. Okay, so what did it practically look like? Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So we're told in this text that the disciples spent time together in both big settings and small settings. In both big settings and small settings. What do I mean? Well, it says they attended temple together. Remember, there's 3,000 of them, right? So there's not a whole lot of places in ancient Jerusalem that can, that can provide space for 3,000 people to meet. But, but what I learned is that the temple was massive. I mean, it was massive. Get this. The temple was 1.5 million square feet. It was a sixth of the entire city map, 1.5 million square feet. And the reason was thousands of pilgrims would come to Jerusalem multiple times a year to worship. One scholar said that as many as 200,000 people would flood into Jerusalem on particular religious holidays. So the temple was a massive structure built to accommodate those people. Think of it like uh, John Paul Jones Arena. Like John Paul Jones Arena is mostly empty most of the time, right? But every once in a while, like 25,000 people show up there. So the temple was this massive structure, and so what the early church did was they devoted themselves to gathering together in the temple. So all 3,000, you know, 120 of them uh, would go into the temple, and they would worship God in singing, they would worship God in prayer, and they would listen to the preaching and teaching of the apostles. The equivalent for us today is Sunday mornings. Okay, the equivalent for us today is Sunday mornings. This is the way that we as a church gather together in a big setting. And let me just tell you, Something unique happens, something supernatural even happens when the church gathers together corporately to praise God and sit under the preaching of his word. Something different happens in this space than happens when I spend time with God in the morning by myself or even when you gather with uh, your friends, Christian friends, to, to talk about a book or to do a Bible study. There is a unique supernatural power to when the people of God bring all of our faith together and praise God with it. It's sort of like the sum is greater than the parts. Does that make sense? Have you ever had a moment? You ever had a moment in a worship service? I know I have. A moment where just, man, all of a sudden the love of God for you just maybe just feels real in a way that it, it never has or hasn't for a long time. I was talking to, to one, of, one person in my missional community this week who said that like a couple weeks ago in the service, during the sermon, all of a sudden she was just really convicted of a sin that she had never even seen before. And since then, she's been processing and saying, I'm seeing this come up all over the place, and I never saw it before. I was completely blind to it until in the service, under the preaching of the word, the Holy Spirit revealed it to her. I didn't reveal it to her. I didn't have any idea what was going on in her life. It was the Spirit using the gathered body to form her into the image of Jesus. There is a unique power when we gather together and join in the line of saints that goes back for thousands of years and gather together and sing praises to the Lord. They did it in the first century, and we should do it today. The early disciples understood that in response to the gospel, one of the natural responses should be devotion to gathering together in corporate worship. I think, unfortunately, we don't always have the same devotion to corporate worship. Imagine um, you had a neighbor uh, who had a dog, and your neighbor said that he loved his dog. He loved this dog. But you noticed every time you saw it outside, the dog seemed really malnourished. 
right? Just like kind of, you could see its ribs, and it, it was really mangy and hadn't been groomed, and you're just sort of worried about this dog. And so you asked your neighbor, you said, hey, uh, man, is your dog okay? Like, is it sick? Do you need any help? Can I, can I help you? And your neighbor said, oh, yeah, I mean, I love my dog, but I just don't get around to it much. You know, like, I'm pretty busy at work, and I've got a lot of things going on, and I travel a lot, and I have a lot of activities, so I just don't get around. I don't feed him all the time. Like, he needs to go to the vet, but I just haven't been able to make it there. It's such a project to get the dog in the car, you know. And I just don't always remember to put water out. Right? What would you think of your neighbor? You'd probably report him, right? You'd be like, I don't care if you say you love your dog. If you love your dog, you're going to make time for your dog. Unfortunately, a lot of us treat the church in a way that if we treated our pets, we would consider it abusive. We, we often treat Sunday morning like we say, I love God, the church is important to me, but, I, you know, it's just I'm busy and I have a lot going on and it's hard to get the kids here and, you know, we travel a lot. And, and hear me, I know life is busy. I hear you. I've got three kids. I get it. Sometimes it feels like just a marathon to get the kids out of bed and to church in the morning. But here, we all know this. We make time for what we care about, don't we? If you have a pet, you make time to take care of that pet, don't you? Even if you've got to get up at 5 in the morning and take that dog out on a walk, I cannot believe how many people in my neighborhood go for walks at 5 in the morning with their dogs. I'm like, that is enough for me to not have a dog, okay? We make time. We, hear me, we make time for what matters to us. So just, I'm not trying to like meddle in your business, and if you're new here, like, you know, you're probably like, oh, great, he's yelling at me. It, it's just like if you say to me, like, I love the Lord, I love Jesus, and, and the church is important, but you're only here once or twice a, a, a month, I'm not sure what you mean, Okay? And I get that it takes time, and sometimes you've got weird work schedules, and sometimes these things you've got to move, but at some point, devotion requires sacrifice. See, the word devotion means you're willing to give up something else to have this thing. Think about it with a pet again. You're willing to give up money to take care of your pet, right? You, you buy food for it. You take it to the vet. If you want to go over on a, a weekend trip, right, you pay to have the, the pet, you know, boarded somewhere, or you, or you, you know, deal with the inconvenience of calling a friend or a neighbor to come take care of them. When you love something and you're devoted to it, you're willing to sacrifice for it. It might be that for you to take a step forward in devotion to the church, you need to take a step back from traveling so much. You need to take a step back from trying to experience everything you can possibly experience in life and instead say, hey, I would love to do that, friend. I'd love to go on another trip to the beach or another trip to the lake or another trip to a city that sounds cool. But, man, I'm prioritizing my local church community. I know this is important, and so I'm going to be there on Sunday morning. I, we've got a group of people in our church that are rock stars at this. And a lot of them are people that are nurses. I will literally talk to some of our members who are nurses, and I'm like, man, how's your weekend? And they're like, well, I got off work at 4 a.m. this morning. And I'm like, oh, wow, what'd you do? And they're like, then I came here. And I'm like, you're more devoted than I am, you know? Like, so I'm not saying that we're not doing this. I think there's a population of us that are, are deeply devoted to this. I would just, I would try to be honest and say, if you're kind of on the fringes and you're here once or twice a month, I'm glad that you're here. I don't want you to stop coming. I would just say, like, let's just be honest about devotion means sacrifice. That's what, that's what the early disciples understood, okay? God wants to do something powerful in your life through this setting, but in order for it to happen, you've got to be here, okay? We work really hard to make this an enjoyable time. I try to work hard to preach engaging messages so you're not falling asleep all the time, right? But you've got to be here. My message does you no good if you don't hear it, okay? We love you. We want you here. We gotta, we're going to get in this together and be here more consistently, okay? So they devoted themselves to the large settings. Here's the second way they devoted themselves to one another, in the small settings, in the small settings. Look back at the verse with me. It says that they were breaking bread in homes, breaking bread in homes. And that phrase, breaking bread, actually is a really uh, interesting phrase. It sort of has a double meaning. On the one hand, it just means real simply eating meals together. So they were breaking into homes to eat breakfast, lunch, dinner, just, you know, normal things. But that phrase also has some religious overtones that refers to communion, okay? It refers to when you would break bread in communion to remember the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. So what this tells us is that in the early church, social and spiritual life were not separate from one another. In the early church, social and spiritual life were not separate from one another. You were friends with the same people that you worshiped with. You were friends with the same people that you worshiped with. You didn't have a set of church friends and then real friends. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe I'm the only one that did this growing up. I had church friends and I had actual friends, right? And I never called my church friends on Friday night to hang out. It was like, I'll see you at youth group or I'll see you on Sunday morning. But like, th these are two separate communities. But, but look, in the very beginning, that's not how God designed it. We should, we should have friendships and we should enjoy community and fun and experiences with the same people that we're worshiping God with and we're in community with in the church. 
It's not an either or, it's a both and. We can get together and have fun and have meaningful conversation. We can get together to study the Bible and enjoy one another. Okay, it doesn't have to be an either or. That's one of the reasons why we have missional communities here. A missional community is simply a smaller group of people from within our church that you live out the mission of our church with. Okay, it's simply a smaller group of people from within our church that you live out the mission of our church with. It's how we break up into smaller groups to break bread in homes. We eat together, we have fun together, we study the Bible, we pray together. Right? The gospel calls us to be devoted to one another, both in the big settings, like on Sunday morning, and in smaller settings during the week. So the question is, are you devoting yourself to one another? Are you devoting yourself in the same way that those early believers did? Are you making a missional community a, a, a rock in your schedule? And you're saying, hey, I'm not going to get there when I can, but I'm going to build my schedule around it. I'm going to tell work. I'm going to tell whoever else, hey, I can't do anything Tuesday nights because that's blocked out on my schedule. Until my wife and I started doing that, we had a hard time being consistent in groups. And then finally, we just said, you know what? Tuesday nights is off limits. We are already committed on Tuesday nights, and that's changed everything. So maybe that's your action step. Just, man, this is off limits. I'm going to be devoted to one another. Let me do a quick side note about missional communities, okay, because they're super important. The point of a missional community is that you and I would devote ourselves to one another, okay? So the whole idea is that we are, we are giving ourselves away in response to the gospel, which means, put really simply and a little bluntly, it's not about you, okay? So MCs are not about you. MCs are about you giving your life away for others. But I'm always a sort of surprised by how many people evaluate groups based on what it gives them. Okay, so then we say things like, man, this MC doesn't really work for me, right? Or I'm not really, I'm not, I don't really like the demographics in this group. I want a group with this kind of demographics or that kind of demographics. But when you understand the purpose of a missional community, that it's simply an environment for you to practice the gospel and to give yourself away for the good of others, you realize that it's not about, it's not about the demographics being exactly what you want them to be. It's not about the format being exactly what you would prefer, but it's simply an environment for you to give yourself away in response to Christ's love for you. Um, this past week in RMC, uh, my, my good friend Stacy shared how she learned this lesson really well when she lived in North Carolina. So she visited a group and uh, really didn't like it. Really didn't like it. It was awkward and some of the people were irritating and she was the only single young professional in this whole group. It didn't look at all like what she had in her mind as the ideal group. But she just sensed God calling her to stay in this group, calling her to commit to this group, even though, man, it was awkward. And for a while, she literally cried on the way home from every single group meeting. Here's the best part. I was the leader of that group. <laughs> so you're like, sometimes you make me want to cry too, Josh, right? right? I was the leader of that group, and I'm going to be honest, it was not great at that point, okay? Like, we, we were dealing with a lot of issues. Um, but here's what I love about Stacy's story. She didn't run from that group because it was hard. But she said, God, this is hard, but I believe you want me here. And she pressed through. She hung in there. And a couple things happened. Number one, the group got better. Stacy was a huge change agent in that group that by our, at the end of our time, I hope she wasn't still crying every day. She might have been. She didn't tell me. Um, right? She helped the group get better. So the group got better. Stacy learned a ton. Stacy learned a lot about not finding her hope in a perfect community and what that looks like, but finding her hope in God. And here's what I love. Uh, she... Because she was in that group, we ended up getting to know each other really well, and she ended up joining us to come plant this church in Charlottesville. So be encouraged. If you currently hate your group, you might plant a church with them one day, right? <laughs> That's my, what, what God do in your, in your life, okay? So I'm just saying, I use that story to say, when you go to an MC, don't go with your, here's what I'd say, get rid of the checklist. I know we all have them. I'm not saying you're bad for having them. Get rid of your checklist of this is what I need in a community, and instead go with a to-do list. Rather than, do you have this? Go with the idea of, how can I serve you? How can I give myself away to this group? And what you'll find is when there's a group of people that are all doing this, it doesn't matter what the demographics are. It doesn't matter what kind of people there are. You're going to love that group eventually. Because a group full of people that are giving themselves away is compelling. A group full of people with a checklist is exhausting. Checklists are exhausting. Get rid of your checklist. To-do list, serving others, that's life-giving. Come with a to-do list, not a checklist, Okay. All right, so they devoted themselves to one another. Here's letter C, the third thing they devoted themselves to, prayer. Prayer, verse 42. This point will be pretty short, but I just want to point this out. It says they were devoted to prayer. And if you've been with us in the book of Acts uh, as we've been going through it, you've noticed that prayer has just come up a lot, hasn't it? So after Jesus ascended into heaven and told the disciples to wait, what did they do? They prayed, right? When they had to pick an apostle to replace Judas, what did they do? They prayed. 
When 3,000 people became Christians and there, was a, there were a million tasks that needed to get accomplished, what did they do? This verse tells us. They prayed. Later in Acts 4 that we're going to come to, when Peter and John get arrested, what did they do? They prayed. The early church prayed so much, hear me, because they were desperate. The early church prayed because they were desperate. They knew they needed supernatural power to accomplish this mission. This little tiny group of non-influential people given this worldwide mission, they knew they needed supernatural power, and nothing, nothing cultivates prayer like desperation. I mean, that's true of me. Is that true of you? When we're desperate, we pray more. When we feel our weakness, we pray more. When we know we can't do it, we pray more. Do you know when the strongest moment of my entire prayer life was? When we first moved here. Because it was like Meredith and I, and I didn't know anyone, and I didn't know if this whole thing was going to work. And I was like, what if nobody shows up, and then I have to go live with my in-laws? Nothing will make you pray like thinking you're going to live with your in-laws, okay? And I have great in-laws, but still, you don't want to end up there at 31 with three kids. Right? So, man, I was desperate in prayer. I prayed in the morning. I prayed at night. I went on prayer walks throughout the day. I was just saturated in prayer because I just felt the desperation of trying to start a new church. Right? I needed God to move. The truth is, if you want to grow in your prayer life, you need to grow in understanding your need. And, and let me, I'm going to diagnose a little bit. I think one of the problems with the American church, one of the reasons we don't pray much, but when you go to Africa or to Asia, man, they pray a ton. Do you know why? Because in the American church, we sort of bought into this notion that there's this kind of Christianity light that we can do in our own strength. If Christianity is just like attend church twice a month, I can do that. I can do 90 minutes on Sunday morning twice a month. Shoot, in a lot of places, it's like 45 minutes. You come here and you're like, why is the service so long, right? Well, if, if that's all Christianity is, you don't really need supernatural power to do that. If all Christianity means is, you know, hey, affirm this set of political beliefs or, you know, take this moral stand on Facebook or share this post, like, no one needs supernatural power to do that. But if Christianity means consistently and daily giving your life away, dying to your preferences, serving others, sharing the gospel even though it might be awkward and you might be ostracized because of it. If Christianity, you're in Africa or Asia, and being a Christian means you might lose your home, you might lose your job, you might even lose your life. If your Christianity is biblical Christianity, you are going to feel your weakness really quickly. I think the reason we don't pray that much is because we're not actually living like Christians. Because people who are trying to do that pray a lot. So here's what I would say. If you want to increase your prayer life, start trying to devote yourself to these things. Start, de not just a little bit, not just like if I get around to, but, but man, just put your flag in the ground and say, I'm devoting myself to learning the Bible. I'm devoting myself to one another in this church. I'm devoting myself to these things. And you're going to learn, just like I do, that it's really hard. It is really hard to die to yourself every day and to treasure Jesus more and to give yourself away. It's hard to forgive your enemies. It's hard to serve your neighbors when they don't seem to reciprocate. It's hard to love that person that's irritating and awkward at work. It's hard not to slander or gossip when your boss does that thing again. It's hard not to take a tone of passive aggressiveness with your spouse. Right? It's hard to serve your kids. It's hard not to pursue the American dream or the young professional dream or whatever your dream is and instead to be a faithful follower of Jesus in this culture. That's hard. And if you start trying to do that, it's going to lead to a lot of prayer. Because you're going to be like, God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. Desperation leads to prayer. So if you want to be devoted to prayer, I think the secret is that you devote yourself to these other things. All right, letter D, last one. Last thing they're devoted to, generosity. Generosity. Verses 44 through 40, 46 say this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So the text says that people in the church were selling their possessions and using the money to help people that were poor or that were in need. This is radical generosity. This is not, hey, here's a couple bucks I had in my wallet, God bless. This is, I'm downsizing my house so that I can give more to the church. And this wasn't a forced communism. I mean, if you look at verse 46, it says that, that they were still gathering in people's homes. So people still possessed property. But don't let that, don't let that limit the impact of this verse. Man, they were, living, they were living with a generosity that seems radical and almost unbelievable to us. Radical, unbelievable generosity. Selling their possessions and giving it to the poor. Now, why were, they, why were they doing that? But let me start with this question. Why does that seem so radical and unbelievable to us? Well, because Americans love stuff. 
Right? Isn't that true? Americans just love stuff. Here's some crazy statistics that I found doing research. The average German saves 10% a year. The average American saves negative 0.5% a year. It gets better. The average American spends $1.26 for every $1 that they earn. This is crazy. 71% of credit card balances in the U.S. have only the minimum monthly payment made on them. 71%. So what those statistics tell us is that as a culture, and we are, in it, we are all influenced by our culture, myself included, as a culture, we are obsessed with stuff. We love stuff. We look to stuff for our satisfaction, for our joy. That's why there's something called stress shopping. Have you ever heard of this? It's like you've had a hard day. You're like, I haven't heard of this. I've done this. You have a hard day. You go home, and you just scroll on Amazon until you see something that you want to buy. I see heads turning. Now I know who it is, right? You just, and Amazon loves that. They're like, come on, stress shoppers, right? You just, why do we do that? It's because stuff is where we find our relief. It's that buzz. It's that hit of excitement of getting a new gadget or a new toy or a new car or a new house projects, right? We love stuff. We love things, and because we look to those things for our satisfaction and our joy, the idea of selling our things or, or, or giving our money away so we can buy less things seems like death to us, doesn't it? Like, how could I ever do that? So the question is, how, how did this early group of Christians practice such radical generosity? Well, they were able to do it because they had a joy and satisfaction that was separate from their possessions. Look at ver verse 46. Do you see what it says? They received their food with glad and generous hearts. That phrase means that they had hearts which were full of joy and satisfaction. And that comes right after it says they were selling their stuff. They had such joy and satisfaction in Christ that they were freed from materialism. They didn't need to find satisfaction and joy in their possessions, and so they were free to give them away. They had found something in God that was better than comfort, money, and possessions. And that empowered them to be generous. It reminds me of a couple uh, who are members of our church um, who back in January prayed and set a very generous goal of how, how much they wanted to give to Center Church this year, right? And they, they started pursuing that. They were doing it faithfully. And then kind of unexpectedly, one of their jobs changed. And so their income decreased, right? It, it, their income is less now than they thought it was going to be in January. But here's what I love about this couple. They didn't decrease their giving goal. Right? They didn't say, oh, I'm making less, so I need to make sure that I give less. They say, no, we're satisfied in Christ. We have what we need. We have food and clothing and shelter. We want to continue giving to the mission of the church because we're more satisfied in Christ than we are in our possessions. Honestly, nothing reveals what we're satisfied in like our bank accounts. So a question that's worth asking is, does the majority of your budget or how much of your budget goes towards you and possessions and, and luxuries? And how much of your budget goes towards the mission of the church or blessing the poor or supporting missionaries overseas? Right? I'm not saying that money is bad. James, James, book of James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights. God has blessed us with many, many possessions. And in America, he's blessed us exceedingly and abundantly. Some of you, just because I know you, you've told me this, he's blessed you above and beyond. And the truth is, when God gives you much, it's also a responsibility for much. If he has given you a lot of zeros in your salary, you are going to have more to answer for than I am. Or these college students, okay? When you look at your bank account, it often tells you what you really, really value. This early church, man, they were satisfied in Christ, and so they were devoted to generosity, even though it was sacrificial. Even though it was sacrificial. So in response to the gospel, these early disciples were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, they were devoted to each other, they were devoted to prayer, and they were devoted to generosity. And when we're impacted by the gospel, when it really takes root, we're going to start growing in those things as well. So the question is, what was the result of that devotion? What was the result of their devotion then, and what will the result be of our devotion in our city today? That's our second point, the result of their devotion, verses 46 through 47. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together... And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Day by day those who were being saved. Simply put, the devotion of the disciples resulted in effective evangelism. The devotion of the disciples resulted in effective evangelism. That was true then and that will be true today. When we devote ourselves to these same things, when we give ourselves away in response to the gospel, it will result in healthy, sustainable evangelism and church growth. 
The reason is that when our lives are marked by devotion, they substantiate the message that we proclaim. Understand what I'm saying there? When our lives are marked by devotion, they substantiate the message that we proclaim. When you have a group of people who no longer live for themselves, who have joy in Christ even in the midst of hard circumstances, who are generous with their money, it makes people ask questions. I know one of our members who's been reaching out to her neighbor, right? And, and her neighbor said the other day, you, you just, your friends just seem different. You just have a really nice group of friends. Well, well, what is that? That's not some sort of secret sauce. That's just, that's just that member and her friends living in response to the gospel. And when we do that, it substantiates the message and people start to ask questions. New Testament scholar Daryl Block says it this way. With Acts 2, 42 through 47 ending as it does, Luke wants to leave no doubt that there is an important connection between community life and the favor of outsiders. This kind of engagement has a positive effect on mission. How we live with one another has an impact on how believable the message is that we proclaim. You ever seen that movie, The Incredibles? Right? I'm a dad. I've seen that movie a lot, okay? So the, the, the Incredibles is basically about this superhero family. And there's, there's five of them, and they all have different powers. And the daughter's name is Violet, and one of her powers is that she can, she can become invisible. And when Violet's invisible, the only way that you can find out where she is is if you throw paint or dust on her head. And her brother Dash is always trying to throw paint or dust on her head, right? And if, you know, growing up my sister was able to be invisible, I'd probably do the same thing, right? So the only way you can see Violet is if you, if you throw paint or dust on her head. Well, the church is supposed to be throwing paint and dust on the invisible Jesus. Okay, Jesus is not visible to our friends and co-workers and classmates here in Charlottesville, right? He's not physically visible. Our job as the church is to live in such a way that he becomes visible to our community. That make sense? Our job is to live in such a way, to respond to the gospel in such a way that the invisible Jesus becomes visible to our neighbors, invisible to our family members, invisible to our classmates, visible to our co-workers. Our lives substantiate the gospel when we give ourselves away in devotion. And here's the thing. Jesus is compelling. People just need to see him. They just need to have some church cut through all the, all the white noise of culture and, and social media and all these things that cloud who Jesus really is. And when they see a community that is devoted to him and that is shaped by his gospel, it's a very compelling community. We as the church are called to make the invisible Jesus visible. That's what that early church did, and it led to people being saved day by day. Here's something else I love about this verse. The fact that people were saved day by day means that they weren't just saved in the big services, right? Because they didn't have a big 3,000-person service every single day. It means that in between the services, the early disciples were bearing witness to Jesus in their everyday lives. They were telling their friends and their coworkers and their family members about Christ, I love it when people come to faith in Christ in one of our services because of one of my sermons. I love that. I love hearing that as a, as a pastor and a preacher. But honestly, I love it more when I hear about people who have come to faith in Christ out in the community because one of you built a friendship with them, modeled the gospel for them, and shared the hope that you have. I love that even more. And we're never going to stop doing this. There is a unique power, like I said, in gathering together to worship. We're going to keep doing that. We're going to try to do it as well as we can. But increasingly in our society, more and more people are not going to come to a service like this first because they've been hurt by the church or because they have misconceptions about the church or because they just have never been and so they never think to go. Which means that more and more we cannot just rely on come and see, but we must also go and tell. You following with me? This right here is come and see. Hey, come with me and hear my pastor. Right? That's great. I love that. But go and tell is you leave from here and you go into the communities and you tell the good news of the gospel to your relationships. That's why at the end of our service, you ever notice this? We don't, we don't dismiss you. We do what we call a missional blessing. We say, now leave here and go and make disciples. The church is intended not to be a battleship that floats in and does all the fighting, the church service, but we're intended to be like an aircraft carrier. You know the difference? An aircraft carrier, you guys come into, you get fueled up, you get some vision, and you get some encouragement, and then you go out and you fight the battles. If there's a battle happening on an aircraft carrier, it's bad. Okay? You don't want to battle on an aircraft carrier. We are a, an aircraft carrier, not a battleship. We're certainly not a cruise ship, okay? So we're not that. Not a cruise ship, not a battleship. We're an aircraft carrier. That's what the early disciples understood. They didn't just rely on Peter and Paul, you know, Peter and John and James and all these guys. They went out, which is why day by day they were being saved. It's another reason why we love missional communities here. Because a missional community is simply a group of people that you can live on mission with during the week. 
And you can, you can pray together for, for your friends, your neighbors, your family members, your classmates. You can invite people into your missional community to hang out, and they can see the invisible Jesus first in your community before they step through those doors. Because for some people, they're not going to step through those doors until they see Jesus put on display in your community. The effect, the result of the early church's devotion was effective evangelism. And when we devote ourselves to the same things, that will be the result today. But there's one more question that is really important that we answer. And honestly, most people don't answer this question when they preach this text. This text is very, very powerful and very, very dangerous. Here's why. This is a get-your-act-together text, isn't it? There are eight verbs in five verses. And it's a beautiful, compelling picture of the church. But too often people study this text or they preach or teach this text without connecting it to what came just before this text. And so what happens is you leave with a, a to-do list, but then you get burned out, and then you're like, well, I guess church just doesn't work that way anymore. And the reason is that this text always has to be connected to its power source. So here's the third question I want to answer today, or the third point. What was the source of their devotion? What was the source of their devotion? And by implication, what should the source of our devotion be today? Well, it's the content of Peter's sermon. It's the content of Peter's sermon. It's what I preached last week week. The power source of this kind of devotion is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's in the gospel that we find the energy to live a life of devotion. It is in the gospel that we find the energy and the motivation to live a life of devotion. In John chapter 17, on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus gathered his closest disciples together and he prayed for them. And in John 17, verse 18, he prayed this, Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus said, I have sanctified myself so that they may be sanctified. Do you know what that word sanctified means? It means to be set apart. It means to be given over to. It means to be devoted Jesus came and he said, Father, I came to this world and I set myself apart. I, I gave myself, I devoted myself for your people. Why? So that they would devote themselves as well. You see, you are not the first person that's being called by God to devote themselves. The first person that was ever called by God and obeyed to devote themselves was Jesus Christ before the foundation of the earth. In the gospel, Jesus devoted himself to save you. He gave himself away entirely. He persevered. He persisted. He sacrificed so that you could be saved. I mean, think about it. He left greatness and power so that you could be delivered from utter weakness. He emptied himself of all of his glory. He took on humility so that you could become beautiful. He became of no reputation. He was rejected and spit upon by men so that you could have a name with God. He lost all love, all love, even the love of the Father. On the cross, the Father turned his face away and forsook Christ because Christ had become our sins. He was rejected so that you could be accepted by God and loved with an unquenchable, unsurpassing love. Jesus took the punishment that you deserve so that you could be declared not guilty. And you could walk out of the courtroom and you could be welcomed into the arms of the Father. To lay aside your glory, to lay aside your preferences, your honor, your interests, your time, your stuff, is simply what results when you think on what Jesus has laid down for you. Jesus is devoted, Jesus is set aside, Jesus has given far greater than you and I will ever give. In your most sacrificial moment, you are not even scratching the surface of what it meant for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to take off his crown and to be nailed into a cross. And he didn't do it because he had to, he did it, he did it because he chose to, because he loves you. 
Friend, when that message grips your heart, when you really believe that, when you believe you've been set free from all of your insecurities, you've been set free from all your guilt, you've been set free from condemnation and hell, and you've been given a glorious, wonderful inheritance that can never be taken away from you, that even if you get sick, even if you have tragedy in this life, one day every tear will be wiped away and every sad thing will come untrue. When you believe that all of that is now yours because Jesus Christ devoted himself for you, how can you not devote yourself? to others. When the gospel goes deep in a church, devotion springs out as the fruit. When the roots go down into the gospel, the fruit of devotion always comes. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2. That is my prayer for this church, that we would put deep roots into the source of the gospel, that we would revel in it, that we would delight in it, that we would be moved by it and shaped by it. And in response, we would devote ourselves. Would you bow your heads with me? I've heard it said, and I think this is true, that there is no one more miserable than a half-hearted Christian. Because you have just enough Jesus to be miserable in the world. You feel guilty, like you should be doing something that you aren't but not enough Jesus to be really satisfied in him. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe there's an area, maybe there's just an area of your life like that this morning that you haven't given it over to him. Man, if that's so, I just want to encourage you. Go all in. Devote yourself to these things. Give yourself in response to what Jesus has given for you and I want to encourage you with this think about the way this community is described they weren't described as burnt out, tired curmudgeons, the text says they were in awe of God that they experienced his presence intimately, that they were living in deep community, that they were known and loved by those around them that they received their food with glad and generous hearts that they had such deep satisfaction in Christ that materialism no longer had power over them, and that they enjoyed favor with all of the people of the community. Their, their lives were so attractive that other people wanted to learn about them. Isn't that what you want? Deep down, isn't that what you long for? My dad is in his 60s now. And it's, like I said, been decades since he worked on that family orchard. But to this day, he can't talk about that time without emotion welling up in his voice. Being devoted to that orchard was hard work, but the community purpose and joy that he experienced was unlike anything else he's ever experienced. Friend, that is what God has for you. Jesus devoted himself for you. And in response, I just want to invite you to devote Get involved here. If, you're, if you've been kind of on the sidelines, come, come all the way in. Father, thank you. Thank you that you devoted yourself for us so that we could be saved. Would you give us courage and strength and power every day to devote ourselves to others.